Now on News Talk, producer Simon O'Gallcore uncovers the hidden history of Dunleary in Town of Kings. If we were to travel back in time to the 18th century in Ireland, we would find very little, if any, human settlement in the area that is now Dunleary. The ruined fort, or Dun of Leary, a 5th century Ardrina Heron, stood alone in the undeveloped landscape by the sea. A map in 1760 by the surveyor John Rock depicts a small fishing village called Dunleary with a coffee house and harbour. There was a smaller cove which was basically for, for fishing boats down near where the, where the present West Pier is. Um, and that was basically all there was here in, in those days. My name is Brian Ellis. I'm the Honorary Librarian in the National Maritime Museum in, in Dunleary. The nearest that we can find to anything remaining there is, is in the general area of what were, which was the Salt Hill Hotel, which is now a range of apartment blocks, and, and the Purty Kitchen, and that appears to be most of what there was really in Dunleary at that time. The Purty Kitchen traces its heritage to an earlier coffee house that is seen in the map of 1760. Hi, my name is Ashley Sheridan. I'm the co-owner of the Purty Kitchen in Old Dunleary Road. Well, we know that the pub uh, dates back to 1728. Behind the Purty Kitchen here uh, was a was a small harbour and it became a popular uh, embarkation point for uh, sail ships to, to England. Um, so it would have started off, and in fact the Purty Kitchen would have originally opened as the Dunleary Inn, and it was a, it was a coffee house. Um, and coffee houses were quite popular uh, in that era. But a kilometre south, in the present location of Dunleary, there was nothing. If we looked in any direction here, what we would have seen is virgin land, uh, very rough, useless, virgin land, uh, unfenced, open, and uh, large rocks protruding out of it. Tom Conlon is an acclaimed local historian. His book, Victorian Dunleary, A Town Divided, charts the development and hidden history of the town. In 1807, a devastating marine tragedy had profound consequences for the area. On November 19th, two ships, the HMS Prince of Wales and the Rochdale, sunk off the coast of South Dublin. The main port for, for this area at that time was, was, was Dublin, obviously. At that particular time, there were a number of troop ships which were, were leaving Dublin with, with hundreds of, of soldiers on them and they got caught in, in the storm, they got into Dublin Bay, and, and they just couldn't control the ships. They were driven onto the rocks around the area, and there were, there were hundreds of, of, of soldiers and sailors drowned. And there had been previous smaller tragedies, and people said, it must, something must be done, something must be done. But after that, there was great pressure to actually get something done, and a guy called Tusher was the guy who actually was instrumental in, in getting something done. It was decided to put what they would call a harbour refuge here in, in Dunleary Harbour. The initial plan being to construct what is now the existing East Pier, 
which would provide a shelter for sailing ships which got caught in storms so they could wait behind this shelter until the conditions improved. Having built the, these pier and finding out that it worked very well, they, they decided to continue and to, to put in the West Pier as well, which is how we ended up with the enclosed harbour. In 1821, George IV, the uh, then King of England, he came to, among other things, open the harbour. Now, George IV wasn't exactly sober during most of his visit. George IV, he was, his nickname at the time actually was the, the Merry Monarch, so he was, uh, he was known to be a bit of a drunk. And, um, but anyway, he visited the Purty Kitchen at the time, I believe it would have been called the Dunleary Inn. The name was originally Dunleary, spelt D-U-N-L-E-A-R-Y, or in some documents, D-U-N-L-A-R-A, Dunlara. But it was changed to Kingstown. Initially, it was King's Space Town, but then very quickly, it was shortened to one word, Kingstown. And uh, so he visited this pub, and his, his body double or his doppelganger supposedly drank here at the time and it was set up for him to, for him to meet his, his body double. And then he asked the gentleman, um, had he ever been to England? Did he have any relatives in England or his mother ever travel? And he said, no, but my father did. And um, uh, so I don't know how that would have gone down with the king on his, on his big important visit in the day. Rough cost was a million pounds in the money of those days. The size of the harbour, the actual area enclosed by the walls, is almost exactly a million square metres. That is 250 acres of water. And uh, so it's a big project, big by... It would be exceedingly difficult to build such a big project in this day and age, let alone in the 1817-1820 period. All the requirements for that sort of industrial project and the scale of it, the, a lot of the stone came from Dawkey and, and Killarney Hills, and there was what we called the metals, which was the way of bringing the stone down. And, and there were hundreds of people involved in, in just the physical work of, of getting that down. And there was a small village up near Dawkey Hill, but obviously there was a lot of support needed in the area and families would arrive to, to stay. So gradually that sort of population built up and as the harbour then developed and more ships came in, obviously led to further development. Kingstown quickly developed into a fashionable location for the elite of 19th century Ireland. Opulent Victorian terraces and sailing clubs were built and a town commission was established. In 1834, the first railway in Ireland arrived, connecting the area with Westland Row. The affluent residents of Kingstown could now easily commute between Dublin City and their seaside homes. Next station, Dunleary. Dunleary. Michael Merrigan, 
I'm an independent councillor on Dunlair Rattown County Council. With the coming of the railway in 1834, or even before that, when you talk about the foundation stone for the the Asylum Harbour, as it was called, in 1817, the workers that uh, were required for that, and it was, you'd understand it, very labour-intensive, the workers came from all around, from Dublin City, but also mostly from Wicklow, Kildare, Wexford, and uh, places such as Dawkey Commons was like a shanty town, and uh, that was there quite uh, up to let's say the latter part of the 19th century. Still had uh, elements of that there, so that population became the nucleus of let's say the working class population of the town. We're on George's Street at the junction of George's Street and Sussex Street. The street is obviously named after George the Fourth. It is an absolute straight line for well more than a kilometre and that's pretty unique in Irish towns where the main street is usually attributed to an old pathway and the, the, the layout of the fields before that and all of that. The main street is a straight line and virtually all of the streets off it are at perfect 90 degrees from that. So it is a, a planned town. Just across from where we are standing now, there would have been the Argentine Meat Company. Uh, just gives you an indication of where stuff was coming from for this town. There was an Italian food shop a little bit further up. Um, there was the... Uh, quite obvious sense that much of the town was built for the wealthier classes, that the, the goods on sale in the shop were quality goods, and uh, that reflected the wealth of the town. There were a number of churches in the town at that stage. We're talking early 19th century, 1830s. But there just wasn't sufficient capacity in them to cope with all the sailors who would have been on the, the ships in the harbour. Uh, it was a, a, church of England, a Church of Ireland church, Protestant church, uh, at that stage, even though there, there was also one being built just only a few streets away near the present People's Park. And at when it started, it was it was capable. It was started off on a smaller scale, and then they built the existing spar and other side pieces on it, uh, and it could hold fourteen hundred people. There's a, a gallery which would have catered for the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy personnel would have been on board guard ships in the harbour, and they would pr parade in the in the lane outside and come to the church service here. And I understand that the, the Navy personnel even brought some of their, their prisoners to, to services at times. Yeah, the, the, basically if there was anybody locked up on, on board the ship, maybe for some sort of misdemeanor, falling asleep on watch or whatever, um, they had to come to church service. It was compulsory they would come. So there were two small docks, basically like docks from a courthouse, up in the corners of, of the gallery, and they would be put in there 
for the compulsory church service. But mind you, they were probably happy enough to get off the, the ship wallowing around in the, in the harbour at the time anyway. That spark transmitter you just heard there is, is precisely the same as the one Marconi had when he came to the Kingstown Regatta in 1898. My name is Pat Herbert from the Hurdy Gordy Museum of Vintage Radio in Hoth in, in County Dublin. The Dublin newspaper at the time, The Express, and its evening sister paper, The Evening Mail, they decided to invite him down to Dublin to transmit on what was one of the biggest races in the British Empire and probably in the world at the time. The finishing line was here opposite the tower in Hoth and the race started in, in Kingstown and uh, Marconi then would uh, send the results back to, to, to Kingstown and uh, they would go from there by telephone to Dublin and it was a very foggy day and of course uh, the people of Hoth or Dunleary, Kingstown, <coughs> couldn't see the, 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 the race but they could read the results in the afternoon paper <coughs> and that became a force worldwide for Marconi and put him on the map worldwide where it became the first sporting event in the world transmitted by wireless and also the first journalistic use of wireless. They never planned for what the ordinary working man or his family might live in. And so that created problems then later on as the town developed and there was no proper accommodation for the, the poorer classes. And the consequence of that was that uh, local entrepreneurs, local shopkeepers included, found that, okay, they were located on the main street, but they had a backyard behind, and the most profitable thing they could do with the backyard was to build little huts, houses, if you like to call them that. They were really habitations uh, of a very poor quality, built in what were called the courts. By 1900, there were 1,100 of those documented as uh, houses that were fit only for demolition. The, the man who did that identification was a Dr. Brown. He was a local government doctor, and he should be regarded as the unsung hero of Dunleary because he brought to the public attention, in a short report, he brought to the attention of the commissioners and the government and various others, the condition under which the poorer people of, of the town were living. 
in those courts. The town grew, as you saw, from 1834 onwards, but that was also at the time of the repeal movement of Daniel O'Connell, and right through with the famine you had more people coming in from the outer areas, uh, bringing with them their, um, you could say, their antipathy to Britain in many ways. We're just crossing uh, Patrick Street at this moment, and uh, entering Cantwell Lane. Now Cantwell Lane is parallel to the main street, uh, just less than a hundred yards from the very centre of the town. And halfway down there is a small narrow lane running at right angles to it. Now that lane in the in 1900, that lane has gardens on both sides. In 1900, those back gardens were filled with little habitations, what are described in the various documents as back-to-back lean-to huts or houses, each occupied by a family. And so on both sides of this little narrow laneway, there would have been gardens full of those, each one named as a court. There would have been Dixon's Court. There would have been courts named after the family who lived in the house at the frontage of it. In other words, the house in whose gardens these houses were. So there, there were courts there. I would personally guess that on the two sides of this, there were at least a hundred families on this laneway, which from one end to the other is perhaps a hundred, hundred and fifty yards long. And all of those would have been the tiniest little single room or maybe, uh, maybe a second room. No, um, no facilities of any sort, uh, just at best, they're described as having ash pits or a shared WC. Even the various changes in the electoral situation between lodgers, etc., that came through the latter part of the 19th century, it wasn't really until the early part of the 20th century. Uh, probably 1912, 1913, that the Nationalists started to get um, a foothold in uh, local government. There was a huge divide between rich and poor, but the poor were hidden, concealed behind closed doors and uh, about the 1920s, 1930s, they began to sort that out. In 1920, Kingstown Urban District Council changed the name of the town. What was the colonial town of George IV was now Dulaire, a town of kings in what was soon to become an independent Ireland. 
Sair August Neibsplatz. We're in the Royal Marine Hotel at the moment. Um, what happened on the 19th of June, 1921? I, I understand that, that four men who were armed entered the hotel on, on that night. Well, that was an incident where this hotel uh, had, with, uh, as indeed most of the secure buildings um, in each of the towns, were used as billets for uh, the British forces. And they had, uh, well, in this case, the officer class. So a number of men of the IRA decided to come in and uh, take them out, as it were. And that didn't go very well. It's well documented that it was a bit of a botched uh, plan. Uh, there was a firefight in the lobby here. And the leader of the IRA that came in, a Lieutenant James McIntosh from Patrick Street, uh, was wounded. He made his way out of the hotel, out past Gresham Terrace, which was a, a kind of stylish Georgian uh, terrace just outside here, out onto Marine Road. On a Marine Road, he was picked up by two other uh, members of the IRA who were basically standing at the Ulster Bank at the time, which is on the corner to, as lookouts. That was uh, Paddy Gallagher from Glasgow and uh, George Merrigan, again from Patrick Street, who, by the way, lived next door to James McIntosh. All three were ex-British Army um, soldiers. They had fought in the First World War, and uh, as indeed most of the IRA in the town were ex-British uh, Army. So they picked up... Uh, Macintosh and brought him to St. Michael's Hospital uh, where it is said he refused treatment and uh, eventually died of blood poisoning. Uh, there are uh, the, the records of the inquest, uh, the military inquest on the, uh, the incident which, were held, which was held in um, St. Michael's I think, uh, clearly shows that uh, the British didn't quite get the geography of the place where they had they were interviewing George Merrigan who happened to be my grandfather and he said he was after just coming up from work and stood at the corner of the bank there to talk to another work colleague Paddy Gallagher and they have a cigarette and they saw a commotion and they went down and helped a man and brought him to hospital uh, Paddy Gallagher at that stage on another incident had been captured and was in uh, police custody but George Merrigan gave his testimony and then was free to go. The fact that George Merrigan lived next door to uh, the man he picked up, the fact that uh, Paddy Gallagher and George Merrigan worked together, all these particular links were not necessarily known. They lived at the time, uh, in 1921, lived with uh, his sister, Ellen in Patrick Street, where of course my father was born, but very well tied to the area since that time, as indeed most of the uh, people who had worked on the pier, uh, most of the uh, staff of Dunlera Corporation, are families that have gone back a number of generations here. You're listening to Town of Kings on Documentary on News Talk.
Well, there are a number of retailers who have been here for quite a long time. Uh, take, for example, Hicks and the Hick family have been pork butchers uh, since about 1927. They had their own abattoir on the street. Well, there, there would have been quite a few abattoirs in the town uh, in those days. But Hicks have stood the course right through to the present day. Hello, uh, my name is Nigel Hick. I'm the managing director of Hicks Butchers uh, of Dunleary. We're here since 1927. My grandfather, he um, worked for his father and they had a shop in Berwick-on-Tweed, which is on the border between England and Scotland. And just around the First World War, there was a bit of trouble outside his pork butcher shop in Scotland. Uh, the English marched outside, uh, local people marched because it, my grandfather obviously was German and they had to shut up shop in, in Scotland and my great-grandfather continued living above the shop in Scotland but then my grandfather came over here to Ireland. So these are all our sausages that were made today which will be on sale tomorrow in the shop and in the supermarkets. Fresh off the pig's back, as they say. My earliest memory, I have to say, is quite an amusing one. The pigs used to get delivered on a Monday, as I said, and uh, one day one of the pigs escaped and ran across the road and went into Penny's on the main street there. And my earliest memory was us running down the road after the pig. <laughs> so, yeah, we will be the true, true local producers of, of South County Dublin. And the trick is to keep your eye on the meat, otherwise you lose a finger. My grandfather worked till he was 88 um, and he used to walk, he lived with his daughter in Dorky and he used to walk up every day. Um, he smoked a pipe till he was about 55. Um, he had a fry most mornings. So going back to what they say about what's good and what's bad for you, who knows, I think it's in the genes. Either you have it or you don't. I have here beside me, Simon, my father's ledger when he came from Newry to Dunleary and uh, I've managed to keep it down the years. It's a beautiful leather bound document and it's uh, quite a heavy book, actually. And you can still see where the traces of ink on the outside where the pen and ink. So I'll just open it up here. And My name is Don McManus and I'm the managing director of McManus Jewellers Limited which was established in 1928 here in Dunleary and we're a family business of jewellers. Now as you can see uh, if we look at, at, at the dates here we'll take a random date and it's April 1929 and um, on a Monday morning uh, the 8th of April, you can see the number of items that were pawned in my dad's premises and uh, the number 727. Now those 727 pieces represented 727 people and they would actually queue, my dad would tell me they would be queuing all the way down George's Street past the hospital and so on and there was a laneway beside the shop and over the doorway there was a lucky horseshoe. And the three balls are very disputed as to regards what they meant, but my dad used to say they were faith, hope and charity, so it should be an interesting one. But the amount that was lent on that Monday morning, as you can see here, was £391, zero shillings and one penny. Now that represents probably 
half the price of a house today in the borough of Dunleary. So it was an extraordinary amount of money to be lent. And the number of items that were redeemed were 85. And if you then go down to the Saturday, you'll find that the opposite happened. There was only 148 items pawned, but 855 items redeemed. Now, they were for the people of the of the vicinity here in Dunleary that wouldn't have had the access to the banking system at the time. And indeed, pawnbroking was, was known as the banker to the people because they wouldn't be entertained by the higher echelons of society at the time. But what they had would they have wedding rings and suits and what have you. And they would be pawned on a Monday to get them through the week if they were short. And they would be redeemed for the religious services that would happen then on the Sunday. So you can see 855 items that were redeemed on the Saturday. And my dad used to tell me in the early days, all the workers would work till maybe 9.30 on a Saturday evening and uh, the cook would come in and we had an old range in the base of the premises and she would cook up rashers and sausages and what have you for all the staff. And even on a Christmas Eve, they'd work till 9.30 at night. So it was hard times and, you know, the wages were very low. But it was an extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary um, uh, system. We had uh, over the years some fantastic stories that have come back to us about people that were uh, pawning items. But one of the most curious ones was a lady who lived very close here off Cross Avenue in Dunleary. And one day she was walking down and she was saying, God, what will I find to pawn? And she passed by rubbish that was thrown out from a house. And part of that rubbish was an electric iron. Now, my father would always plug in any electrical appliance to make sure that it was functioning. But this lady was very clever and she brought it home and she put it on the range and she heated up the iron, then wrapped it up in a, uh, in a blanket and ran down to my dad. And she, it was actually her daughter told me the story and my dad unwrapped it and said, Asher, Sean, look, you know, it, it's still hot. I'm only after ironing the husband's trousers. So my father, of course, said, well, there's no point in plugging it in. So lent her two shillings and sixpence. And of course, the damn thing never worked at all. We're here beside the Victoria Monument. This uh, is a fountain erected here to commemorate the 1900 visit by Queen Victoria. Davy Stevens was a newsseller who sold his newspapers just at this particular spot or when the boats were coming in he would go down uh, to the mail boat he would go down and sell them there at that point. He is actually well recorded in some Pathé news uh, newsreels of the time presenting his newspapers to incoming dignitaries. My name was George Davis. I started selling newspapers when I was nine years of age in Dunleary. I followed me two brothers, Gerard and Paul Down. We sold papers for, for Jimmy Rogerson at the time and there was a couple of families in the town. There was the Scullys, the Rogersons, the Kennys and, uh, and before that there was uh, Scoop Johnson was there as well. There was Lynch's over the year, years that I've heard about. I left school at 13 to sell me papers. I um, took over from Mr Scully. He gave me his, his pitch at, at the um, at the church and I went out on my own then and from there I built up my business. Hi, no. uh, Irish Times, please. We'd, we'd uh, get our papers and we'd run down the pier, first up, best dressed in that day, and you'd sell your papers. You used to get paid by the dozen. I can't remember how much we got paid by the dozen. Then you get back up and you would then 
sell ten or twelve dozen of papers a day. Be a lot of papers in them days. I mean, there'll be anything up to forty or fifty lads out selling them. You'd be going into the pubs anywhere at all you could go. My name is uh, Morris O'Loughlin, and uh, I'm a senior barman in 26 Lower George Street, Dunleary O'Loughlin's. We began there in, uh, I think it was December 29, 1929, yeah. The pub, the pub changed like when the father died in 66. Uh, Guinness kegs were coming in, draft stout was the main, main product really, in around 1966. It became uh, points of smithics and points of uh, lager. Complete change in the, in the scene. TV coming into the pubs back in the 70s and that changed the whole scene of a pub. There was a time for great argument and debate and uh, just general talk. But now, of course, with this, the matches on and the sport on and political programmes wanting another, there's a lot of uh, quietness, really, with people watching them, you know. The fire station was shifted. The fishing was a three-mile limit business, which changed everything. Didn't have the fishermen. They were restricted in their business. The coal yards closed. There was four of them. They all closed. So naturally, the workers and the industry, they're all cooled down. Less trade in the bars. They had all dispersed all around the place. So scene got a bit quieter. We were fortunate that when the counter was made, we found that the kegs could fit underneath, which gives a short lead to the dispenser and the perfect point. Well, that is it. The lads will tell you themselves. They can't. Even strangers now, like coming in, I naturally I'd boast, but strangers coming in and all like that, even for a quick one, they nearly always get two. And that's a great sign, you know, you're only passing through. And, and, and many of them, very nicely, say, oh, great point, be gone. You'd never see them again. Like, they might live in town, but we're out doing business, you know. So in that sense, we're very lucky. <laughs> There's Burnett's uh, Pharmacy, who's been there for a very long time. Old photographs show it with the traditional old bottles that would have been in a, a chemist's shop in those days. My name is Genevieve MacDonald and I'm the pharmacist here in Burnett's Pharmacy. Hello, Burnett's Pharmacy, Gemma speaking. Burnett's Pharmacy has been here uh, on George's Street since 1890. It was established here by Mr Burnett. The next owner was Ms Marks, followed by Pat Downey, then myself. Ms Marks, from what I understand, was a formidable woman. Um, a lot of our customers here would have known her and gone to her and from what I understand she was a brilliant uh, chemist she had an ointment and a, a, a she had a remedy for everything and uh, I a lot of our customers here they've been coming here for generations so it's lovely when they come in and they tell you stories about Mrs Marks we never went to a doctor you come in to Mrs Marks that's what we called her and if we were sick or sore she tell us to wait here. We were never sent home. We were told to wait and she'd make up medicine or whatever she was giving you. And when you had chicken pox, she made up a cream and she put a bit of sulphur in it. And then she'd give you a little bag of sulphur to put in the water. She'd be better than the doctor. That's why you were never brought to a doctor. Then when you had the baby, 
<laughs> it was like a Moses basket and it was put on the scales like that and brass weights and she'd weigh the baby there for you. So you wouldn't have to go up to the baby clinic with your baby. And if your baby was sick or sore, she'd be able to tell you. My God, she must have done everything for the people of Dunleary. I'd just have a big book and she'd be writing in, you know, and she'd say, now, don't forget and come back now. Let's see how you're getting on. So now I have a, the original, one of the original prescription books. And these were used um, before computers to record um, you know, what people's names, their medication addresses, how much the prescription was. It's lovely to have something tangible like that as well um, that you can look through and, you know, it, it's a little bit of history. And my father and my grandfather and all, we all came here. It's only now we know where a bloody doctor is and that they can't treat you. But she is one of the best and she was a lady. And if she'd no barley stick, she'd give you a lollipop till she got more in. We never paid for one. She always gave us one for nothing, as we were good. <laughs> Further down the street, then, there is the Miami Cafe. Basically, it would have been the fish and chip shop of the uh, 1914 or thereabouts. My name is Domenico Rea, and I'm from the Miami Cafe uh, in Dolleary. The name came from, uh, well, all the chippers back then were called the Roma, Genoa, uh, all sorts of Italian city names. And uh, so he wanted to be a little bit different. Uh, the previous owner, the, the owner, the original owner of the place that started off in 1914, he wanted to be a little bit different because Dolneri had about 14. 14 chippers when my father came here the first time in 1970. So there's not, no ties with America at all. I came to the conclusion, I think, that 1918 or thereabouts was the time when Dunleary, or then Kingstown, was at its absolute peak, uh, that the shops, shop fronts were all brand new as a result of the reconstruction of the frontages. Um, business was doing exceedingly well. Um, the whole place was was looking very well. The, the, the new housing for the poor people had been there. So 1918, 1920s was a very, it was a very good place and it continued pretty well through to the 1960s from then. It has declined over the last uh, period. It's in a crossroads of change. And uh, it's not like what it used to be 10 years ago. It's not the same as it was 40 years ago, as the people used to tell me. So we're in a crossroad of change in Dunleary. And I see positive things happening the last two years. Uh, we've gone through some hard times, but I think we see better times coming. That idea that, you know, that ferry traffic, uh, non-commercial ferry traffic, I, I can't see that being a huge future. But um, certainly we have uh, a new technology company that are hopefully going to move in in the next few months. And that will bring probably between seven and 900 jobs into Dunleary in the IT business. The seafront is fantastic. It's the main street 
is struggling. I think they should be plant. They should before they start putting up plastic cheap shop fronts. They, they should you should be have you should have to go for planning for that because a lot of the shop fronts are are run down. They look disgraceful, and it's not catching the eye. A lick of paint here and there wouldn't go astray. So we changed it blue, but for about a couple of days, people thought we were closed down because originally it was red and we changed it to a light blue. So everybody thought we were gone. And they were calling the phone, where have you moved to? Have you gone? Why did you close? He says, no, we're still there, but we're changed. We're just changed the color. You know, so people never really looked up what the name was or anything. They just knew where to go. They just seen the red shop and they just walked in. So now the colors changed. They got lost. <laughs> Most people don't even know what it costs to park a car in Dunleary. I have a, a little sort of wager here across the counter when people complain about the price of parking. And I say, if you tell me what it costs for an hour, I'll pay for your parking for a month. And to this day, I have not had to pay anybody's parking. Well, I remember Dunleary before the shopping centre. And as regards to grocery shops in Upper George Street, we had from the archway, we had Williams pay and take. Lipton's, Home Colonials, McFarland's and Maypole. They were all small grocery shops along that line on the run up to the corner of Marine Road. The buildings as they came completely changed it. They widened the streets, the atmosphere was different and the old uh, friendliness seemed to have disappeared at that particular time, you know. The shopping centre was one of the things in the town and a big mistake they made back down 30, 35 years ago, they stopped the buses coming into the town. They put the buses down the seafront and said the old people from the Noggin or the Monkstown farm would have to walk up from the railway station up Marine Road, which is a bit of a drag for an old person if they're doing shopping or that, especially in the winter time and all. And then they made a one-way, which in my, in my estimation, it killed the town. It never came back from it. It needs a concerted effort by council, uh, by business, and to have a clear vision of what the town can be, and a realistic one, not one that has based on nostalgia for what was there before, or in the hope that in some way we'll magically be able to go back to a kilometre-long outdoor shopping mall. Nobody wants that anymore. So am I hopeful for the future? As a Dunleary man, I have to be, and I am realistically so, but it, the town is changing. There's three books. So, like, this is how it goes, because that's the biggest one. Hello, my name is Marion Therese Keys, and I'm the Senior Executive Librarian at DLR Lexicon in Dunleary. Dunleary Town was was my town for all of my life really. I used to swim in the baths which I'm delighted to, to see they're being uh, revitalised very shortly. I used to play in the People's Park, swim in Scotsman's Bay and of course walk the, the wonderful pier. Um, I think there was controversy because of course it was in the midst of the recession and you know a big build like that, a big commitment to a, 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 a space um, would you know in the height of, of you know there was a, a voting happening that year as well um, so it was a, a major talking point and anything very new can be controversial but 
The whole plan from the beginning was to work with the space and the Hague Terrace, I think it's really opened up that space so people can walk down from Dunn's and Harry's up on Georgia Street down that back space, which is all beautifully opened up now. It's a real piazza or plaza area in front of the Maritime Museum and in front of the pond, which is a very open and thriving and vibrant space, especially when the sun is shining and students are sitting out and using the library and hopping in in, in and out. And it's, it's a direct walkway down to the pier. There you go. And then an Oreo pound again. My name is Yasmin. I am one of the owners of Teddy's. Teddy's opened in uh, the summer of 1950. I believe it was July. And um, the guy who opened it, his name was uh, Teddy Jacobs. And he was a local guy. He used to live in number one and two. And this initially was a shed in his back garden. There's loads of kids I've seen when they were maybe seven, eight years old and they've grown up and they've gone to college and they're still coming in and they don't recognise me, but I remember them. And it's it's great. And I, I listen to their conversations, kind of eavesdropping a little bit and they're talking to their girlfriends and they're telling them stories. And I'm kind of thinking, yeah, that's not quite the way it happened when you were here. But sure, um, it's fab. It's fab that the tradition is continuing. I think um, with the development of the baths, it's going to sort of bring the park to the seafront. And I think for all the complaining people are, are, are doing, when it's come to fruition, it will make a massive difference. If we can control the parking and join the town to the seafront, 10 years from now, this place will be completely different. And I never seen the sun set so low on any other single I always think of it as a, it's like a village within the city of Dublin. It's very unique. Um, it was the largest man-made harbour in the world and remained so for over a hundred years. So its feat of engineering was absolutely, you know, extraordinary at the time. The harbour brought uh, commercial life and um, uh, traffic into Dunleary, it it will continue as that. It's a marine leisure tourist destination. It is a absolute cornerstone of the economic future of the harbour. We wouldn't have a town without the harbour. There would be no reason for it. I'm kind of proud. I think it's 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 got a great um, a great vibe about it. Dunleary's been my whole life and I'm proud, proud Dunleary man. Maybe I'm biased because of the, the salt water and the blood, but uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, Dunleary <laughs> is, is a, is a harbour town, uh, and I, I'm, I'm very lucky. I was I was born here and, and grew up here. They clearly anticipated that a town would develop as a consequence of building a harbour, and so they laid out the design of the street. Oh, yes,
Ten of Kings was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. The programme was produced and edited by Simon O'Galcore. Special thanks to the people of Dunleary and to Tom Conlon, author of Victorian Dunleary, A Town Divided. To listen back to this or any other News Talk documentary, go to newstalk.com forward slash documentary on News Talk.